You can open your Bibles to Hebrews 3, 7 through 19. Hebrews 3, 7 through 19. Uh, since becoming a parent of little kids, it seems like warnings have come to take on a much larger role in my life. I'm not sure a day goes by without me uttering some kind of, of warning. You know, don't touch that. Uh, don't put that in your mouth. Uh, be careful. Hold on with, with both hands. Uh, and uh, just thinking about this, warnings really do play a large role in our lives. Some warnings are more helpful. Some warnings are, are less helpful. Uh, we appreciate warnings like, you know, danger, high voltage, or uh, danger, poison, uh, things like that. Uh, but I, I stumbled across a couple warnings that seem a little bit less necessary. So not all warnings are <clears throat> equally necessary. Uh, one warning was caution, do not iron while wearing shirt. That one seems somewhat obvious. Uh, a warning on one of those razor scooters that uh, you know that that kids ride on. Uh, on the on the bottom of one of those, uh, it was a picture. Warning: This product moves when used. Maybe the most perplexing one I saw was was a red warning label on a prescription bottle for dog medication. So it was very clearly this was you know from a veterinarian. This was for someone's dog, it said really clearly on it, but then there was this red warning label on there uh, that, that started off by saying, uh, may cause drowsiness. Okay, you know, that's, that's helpful. But then it went on, uh, alcohol may intensify the effect of this medication. Thought, oh, you know, okay. Uh, then the, but the last part of the warning said this, use care when operating a car or dangerous machinery. Not, not all warnings are equally as relevant or uh, applicable, I guess. Uh, but the Bible contains warnings for us as well. And the book of, of Hebrews is particularly known for its warning passages. Uh, and we've actually looked at one of these warning passages already at the, at the beginning of, of chapter 2. Uh, but that brings us to uh, this passage this morning, the, the next warning passage in Hebrews. Uh, we see in verse 6 of chapter 3 that, that we are included in God's house if indeed we continue, or if we hold fast to our confidence and our boasting and our hope. And then we pick up in verse 7 of Hebrews 3. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold fast our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who are those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was He provoked for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did He swear that they would not enter His rest? but to those who were disobedient. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. 
Let's pray together before we go any further. Father, would you allow the full effect of this warning, of, the, of this passage of your perfect and infallible word, would you, would you allow it to have its full effect on us this morning? Would you not let these next moments pass by without us being affected by your words, which we know are good for us, which we know are helpful and useful and necessary. We thank you for your word, and we ask that you would bless us now as we consider these things. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> so, so in this text, the author of, of Hebrews uh, cites a passage of the Old Testament. Uh, he cites Psalm 95, which uh, David read earlier before uh, before the song set. Psalm, he, he cites not, Psalm 95, verses 7 through 11, and he cites that in verses 7 through 11 of, of chapter 3 of, of Hebrews. And then in verses 12 through 19, the author applies the passage to these, uh, to these second generation Christians, uh, the, these Hebrew Jewish Christians. And, and the application of Psalm 95 to these early Christians takes the form of a warning. And if we're going to take this warning seriously, we need to consider what's at stake in the warning what the warning instructs us to do, and what the results of heeding this warning will be. If we're going to take this warning seriously, we have to consider the stakes, the instructions, and the results. So let's consider first what's at stake in this warning. Take a look at verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. The connection to Psalm 25 or Psalm 95 is really obvious. Look at verses 7 and 8. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness. Uh, our understanding of the hardness, uh, hardness of heart uh, stretches all the way back to the Old Testament. A, a hard heart is a concern for us this morning. Uh, it was a concern for the original recipients of this letter to Hebrew Christians. It, it was an issue for the uh, people who were alive when Psalm 95 was written, and, and it stretches all the way back to the Israelites in uh, and the story, their story recounted in Exodus and Numbers and Leviticus and, and Deuteronomy. Uh, a hardness of heart is what we're being warned against here. And Psalm 95 uh, points to two specific episodes in, in Israel's history in the Old Testament. Two particular episodes in, in Exodus 17 and in Numbers 14. You, you don't necessarily have to turn there. You can if you want. But just to take a look at those briefly. Look at verses 8 and 9. Of Hebrews 3. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test. Uh, those words rebellion and testing. If you look in verse, uh, uh, if you look in Psalm 95, depending on your translation, it might actually just say Meribah and Masa there. The Hebrew word Meribah means quarreling or rebellion and, and the Hebrew word Masa mean, means testing. And so this refers back to this, this episode in the Old Testament in the book of Exodus in chapter 17, just after God had miraculously rescued uh, His people out of Egypt. And, he, and he's, he's getting ready to prepare to bring them into the promised and prosperous land of Canaan, the promised land. And in Exodus 17, the people grumble. They're grumbling because they're thirsty. And so God instructs Moses to strike a, wa a rock and water comes out of the rock. And in Exodus 17.7 we read, uh, And Moses called the name of the place Massa and Meribah 
because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? So according, according to Psalm 95, uh, what was happening in these people's hearts, the people of Israel in Exodus 17, is they were hardening their hearts towards God. And while the incident of Exodus 17 takes place at the beginning of their wilderness journey, uh, Numbers 14 takes place towards the end of their, their wilderness journey. And you might remember how the, they send spies into the land of Canaan to spy it out. And those spies come back and they have a negative report after they spy out the land uh, of Canaan. They, they come back and, and their, their testimony is that, yeah, the land is flowing with milk and honey. This is very fertile, prosperous land. But there are very intimidating people in that land. There's even giants in that land. And, and so that report stirs up the people of Israel and they start to grumble again. In fact, they grumble so much that they become angry to the point that they want to kill Caleb and Joshua, the, the two people who are urging them to trust God. Uh, and it's just fascinating to note. So a year earlier, a year earlier, they are singing God's praises for delivering them out of Egypt. Uh, Exodus 15.21 Sing to the Lord, for He has triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider He has thrown into the sea. They're, they are singing God's praises. And a year later, there is apparently no confidence that God can overcome the people of Canaan. No confidence. And why? The answer, Psalm 95 and Hebrews 3, is they have hard hearts. Look at Hebrews 3 verses 10 and 11. 10 and 11. Therefore I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Uh, rest here is just referring to the promised land. It's referring to the place that they were headed to to live out the rest of their lives. And uh, Numbers 14 is the account of where God decrees that the people in the wilderness are not going to inherit the land. They're going to now want, he decrees, they're going to wander for 40 years until everyone over the age of 20 dies. And it's the second generation. It's their children who are going to get a chance to inherit that land. But they are not, it's, it's in Numbers 14, God decides they are not going to, uh, they're not going to go. And uh, Psalm 95 in Hebrews, again, warn us through this passage against having hard hearts, hearts that go astray. According to the text, Exodus 17 and Numbers 14, the, the, this actually characterized the people all throughout the wilderness journeys. These weren't just isolated events. Uh, look at verse 9 in Hebrews 3. Uh, it says, they saw God's works for 40 years. They, they witnessed all of God's works. You think of all that they witnessed. Supernatural plagues, supernatural rescue, supernatural provision of water and, and food, uh, the, the, the great glory cloud of God's presence coming down at Mount Sinai and coming down into the, the tabernacle and, and great sobering judgments against Israelite offenders. They, wish, they witnessed all of it and they still had hard hearts toward God. What stands in the way of your faith growing, what stands in the way of a dynamic relationship with the living God is not more evidence. It is not for you to witness more miraculous events. It's easy to think if I just saw something miraculous or experienced something miraculous or even just heard a story about something miraculous, that would help. But that is not what's standing in the way 
between you and a, and a dynamic relationship with God. What stands in the way is our own hard hearts. That's one of the things at stake we have to consider in this warning. Verses 8 and 15, hardening your heart. Verse, verse 10, a heart that goes astray. Verse 12, an evil, unbelieving heart. Verse 13, it's implied a heart hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. But a hard heart is not the only thing at stake. The other thing at stake we see is falling away from the living God. Look at verse 12 again. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Now, this, this is difficult in at least two ways. First, it's, it's just, this is a difficult concept uh, experientially. It, this is just a sober thing to consider, to fall away from the living God. Over and over again, the Israelites proved to have hard hearts. Uh, th- this made them the most privileged people on the planet. They're the most privileged people on the planet at the time, but they're far from the God who loved them. They, these are people who have been rescued from slavery from one of the most powerful nations on earth. Uh, these are people who have the living, holy God, the creator of the universe, dwelling in their midst. Uh, it says in Exodus 30, 36, that God was dwelling in their midst throughout all their journeys. Uh, not only that, but they're traveling to inherit uh, this, this land that had been promised to their ancestors, which was prosperous and and fertile. It's, it's described as flowing with milk and honey. They're to go live out the rest of their lives in this Garden of Eden-like place where there will be peace and security. Not only that, but these people are the, the, they're the inheritors and the bearers of the great promises of redemptive history. From this, from this family would come one, one who'd be a king. And a king who would, who would crush the head of the serpent and, and end sin's reign on earth and, and bless all the peoples of the earth. These, these were easily the most privileged people on the planet, and yet they were far from God. Look at verse 10. God says, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. So it's possible to be in God's presence and have an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. That is tragic. And the the author of Hebrews is warning us here, don't fall away from the living God. So that's that's difficult, uh, just as it's sobering experientially. But it's it's also a difficult concept theologically, because maybe you're asking, uh, does this mean you can lose your salvation? Is the author of Hebrews telling us here you can lose your salvation, fall away from the living God? What about other texts of the Bible that talk about God not uh, letting any out of His hand and that, that God will continue the work He started in them? What about other texts like that? Uh, the author of Hebrews addresses these people as Christians, as, as believers. He calls them brothers in verse 12. Uh, in, in order to understand what the author is getting at here, we, we need to understand what the goal of the author of Hebrews is. Uh, he's writing here a sermon, right? The Hebrews is different from all the other New Testament letters. Uh, it's a letter, but this is essentially a sermon that's being written here to these Hebrew Christians. And he's writing this sermon to them to admonish them to, to persevere in their faith. Uh, he spent chapters 1 and 2 reminding them of Jesus' majestic glory, how, how Jesus is better than anything that has come before and anything that has come after. Uh, he's warned them already of the danger of, of slowly drifting away in, in chapter 2. And now he's warning them to be cautious about 
hard hearts. His goal is, is to encourage them. He's trying to get them to persevere until the end. Uh, biblically, we have to hold two realities side by side, and, and they don't contradict, but it can be difficult sometimes to <clears throat> conceptualize both. One is that all those who God saves, God keeps until the end. All those who God saves, He will not lose. And at the same time, all those who God saves must persevere to the end. All those who God saves, He will not lose. And all those who God saves must persevere until the end. So, so the net effect of this warning, the goal that the, the author of Hebrews has here is that, is that genuine Christians who indeed cannot fall away will genuinely persevere in their faith, knowing that the consequences for apostasy, the consequences for walking away from Christ, will be to experience His wrath and not His rest. Oh, let me say that one more time. The, the net effect of this warning is that genuine Christians who cannot fall away will genuinely and willingly persevere in their faith, knowing that the consequences for walking away from Christ will be to experience His wrath and not His rest. Verse 14 is really important here. Look at verse 14. That's where we read, For we have come to share in Christ if, indeed, we hold our original confidence firm to the end. It's really similar in verse 6 above. If you look at verse 6. And we are His house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Genuine Christians... Uh, people who have come to share in Christ are those who hold their original confidence in the gospel firm to the end. Uh, the example of Israel in the wilderness is, is helpful again here. Israel had experienced part of their salvation at the point of, of Exodus 17 and, and Numbers 14 and, and all throughout in, in between. They had experienced part of their salvation. They had experienced slave or being saved out of slavery in Egypt. They had been saved out of slavery in Egypt, but they had not yet been saved into life in the promised land. And true Christianity is very much the same. True Christianity is not just slavery out, or just not rescue out of slavery to sin. It's not just salvation out of slavery to sin, but into a vibrant life in God's kingdom. It's both. I'll never forget Jake. Uh, who was an acquaintance in college. We weren't good friends, but we, we knew each other. Jake had this incredible conversion story. He had a hard childhood. He, uh, he, he grew up and got into drugs and actually started dealing drugs. And uh, he was busted and he went to prison. But it was at that point that God provided some mentors in his life. And that's the point where God apparently had saved him and rescued him from life as a criminal. And uh, Jake, for a couple of years, he, he always was eager to share his story of God's grace in his life and to, to tell people about Christ. And uh, he, he was a very, he had a lot of charisma and an entrepreneurial spirit. And he, very quickly, he, he was placed in positions of leadership in, in campus ministry. And at one point, he even oversaw a very large group of, uh, of college students in an evangelistic ministry. Um, everyone loved Jake. And, and today, Jake, he still isn't a drug dealer. He, he spends his time very productively trying to start businesses and to promote positive social causes that really do help people. But today, there is no evidence for, of any love for Christ in Jake's life. Uh, he, he, he does affirm some sort of interest in spirituality in general, 
Uh, but this is the guy who once spoke of the glories of Christ and what Christ had done for him. And to, today he is ashamed to mention Christ, lest that it would negatively affect his entrepreneurial or, or networking opportunities. Many people claim to be, have been saved by God, but that doesn't mean they've been saved to God. Many people claim to be rescued from slavery to sin, but that doesn't mean that they make it to the promised land. Once we're in the wilderness, once we're in the wilderness, we find out whether we really love the God who saved us or whether we're really just interested in God's gifts. This concept flies in the face of a lot of evangelical Christianity. Uh, I remember sitting across the table from this elderly man. He was asking for a prayer for his adult daughter. <clears throat> his, his daughter had apparently spent her entire adult life in rebellion against God. Uh, there was just a very long history of drug and alcohol abuse, no interest in God, no interest in the community of God's people, no interest in God's Word. Uh, these are all things that, that Christ's work is, is more than sufficient to provide forgiveness for. Uh, but this, this was the story of her, uh, her life. And I'll never forget what he said. It was something close to something like this. He said, I know I don't need to worry about her salvation. She prayed the prayer when she was nine, so I know she's good there. I just hope God can get her life straightened out. I know I don't, I don't need to worry about her salvation. She prayed the prayer when she was nine. I just hope God can get her life straightened out. Now, I'm not questioning this guy's his, his attentions. They're, they're assumably good. He cares about his daughter. I'm not even claiming to judge this woman's salvation. I've never met her. I don't, I, I don't know her. But the idea that, that salvation amounts to some kind of one-time prayer event is, is completely foreign to the entire Bible. It's, 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 it's just not there from, from beginning to end. Salvation is salvation out of something and into something that perseveres to the end. Look at verse 14. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. So this, this warning passage does not deny eternal security. It, it helps define eternal security. So we've seen that what's at stake is a hardened heart, uh, is, is falling away from the living God. Uh, the final thing we see at stake here in this warning is death. Look at verses 16 and 17. For who are those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom is he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? Uh, the consequences for hard-hearted rebellion in the wilderness of the people of Israel was death in the wilderness. Uh, they, they never got to experience the blessing of God's rest, uh, life in, in the promised land of Canaan. But look at verses 18 and 19. And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Unbelief, the ultimate factor in their rebellion against the God who had saved them was unbelief. They didn't believe God. And so they rebelled against God. They provoked and tested God. They disobeyed God. All because of unbelief was down at the root cause of all that. 
Uh, It's important to understand the comparison between the the Old Testament Israelites and and us today. The the Old Testament Israelites, their hard-hearted rebellion and unbelief resulted in the loss of great earthly blessing. But the warning here for us this morning is don't make the even greater mistake of hardening your heart resulting in the loss of eternal blessing. We're comparing earthly blessing and eternal spiritual blessing with these two passages. The consequences for unbelief for Israel was physical death in the wilderness. The consequences for unbelief here today after Christ has come is eternal spiritual death. Everything's amplified in the New Testament. Jesus is greater than everything that has come before. But this, this is, there's a sense which the stakes, the stakes are higher as well. So we consider that what's at stake here is a hard heart, is falling away from the living God and eternal death. But let, let's consider the author's instructions here too. Not just what's at stake, but let's consider the instructions. The instructions come in two forms. Uh, there, there's the personal dynamic and there's an interpersonal dynamic. Let, let's look at the personal dynamic first. Look at verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. Take care. Watch out. See to it. Uh, the, the instruction at this point is basically, look out, be aware, heed this warning, uh, discern your heart. Uh, the, the Israelites are an example here. Neither God's blessings nor, nor the privilege of hearing God's voice audibly Neither of those two things guarantee entering God's rest. You can be blessed greatly by God. You can even hear God's audible voice. And neither of those things, or the combination of those things, neither one of those lead to the guarantee of entering God's rest. Let's take note of their grumbling and complaining. This is convicting. What are we saying when we grumble and complain? What is the heart behind every complaint and grumble? God is not very wise. God is not very powerful. Otherwise, my circumstances would be different. Maybe even the worst one. God is not very good. Otherwise, my circumstances would be different. Sentiments like that demonstrate exactly what God says of the Israelites in verse 10. Look at verse 10. They have not known my ways. Now, this isn't to say that there is not a place in the Christian life for lament, for, for lamenting life in a fallen world, which is very difficult and filled with sorrows. The, the Bible actually gives us a lot of help in expressing lament, it, it, expressing our dissatisfaction of what it's like to live in this difficult, fallen world and still hope in God. That's not what I'm talking about this morning. That's not what Hebrews 3 is referring to this morning. The Israelites grumbled and complained. Uh, Richard D. Phillips is a, is a pastor and theologian in South Carolina. Here's what he writes about this. He, he writes, complaining, complaining is a symptom of a deeper spiritual problem. If we grumble and complain, it indicates a very poor knowledge of God. The point is that while the Israelites had enjoyed God's works, They had not reflected on God. They were interested in what God did for them, but not in God Himself. 
So, personal diagnostic question this morning. Am I interested in God? Am I interested in God? Uh, What makes you interested in spiritual things? Is it the all-satisfying, holy God of the Scriptures? Or is it the social benefits that come with Christianity? Or or the emotional benefits that come with with Christianity? Uh, Is Christianity just simply some support for what you actually really love? Or are you even interested in spiritual things? Are you really even interested in spiritual things? Am I interested in God? Uh, Personal diagnostic question number two, another one. How did I respond during the last crisis in my life? How did I respond during the last crisis in my life? Uh, the, the comparison with Old Testament Israel is, is helpful here, I think, especially for Americans, right? So just to kind of put this on the map, what are the, what corresponds here? We, we have rescue from slavery in Egypt corresponds to rescue from slavery to sin and death, all right? Uh, the being spared by the blood of the lamb on the doorpost during the Passover corresponds to being spared by the blood of Christ on the cross. And then the, the promised land, corresponds to life in the new heavens and the new earth. So just putting those on the table, where does that place us in comparison with Israel? Where where are we uh, in in the scope of things here? We're we're in the wilderness. We're where Israel was. We're in the wilderness. Why do things go wrong? Why are things so hard? You're in the wilderness. This is practically helpful to know. It's practically helpful to remember every single day when, when you're struggling watching someone with cancer or uh, when, when your child is, is growing up and making really poor choices or when uh, you're, you're not getting a full night's sleep because you've got little children or even just something small like when your car breaks down. You're in the wilderness. How did you respond during your last large struggle in the wilderness? Was there faith in God's promises? Was, was there evidence of knowing God's ways? Was there a remembrance of God's faithfulness in the past? Or was there a hard, unbelieving heart and unbelief? The author is reminding us here, hear these words, take care, watch out. The other thing the author's calling us here, or calling us to here, is, is a little more indirectly, but he's, he's calling us to belief. So maybe this is discouraging. Maybe this seems like a downer sermon. Maybe this seems a little bit negative, a little more than, a little too negative. Uh, maybe you're sitting here thinking, you know what, I don't think anyone can ask one more thing of me. Uh, it's difficult enough. I'm trying, and, and I, I don't know if God can ask one more thing. But, but what's, what's the author of Hebrews calling us to here? What, what's he asking of us? Is, is he asking you? Uh, is, is the res- right response to Hebrews 3, you know, you need to double your time reading God's Word each day. Uh, you need to double the amount of Bible verses you have memorized. Uh, you need to volunteer much more time. You need to do much more ministry. You need to give much more money. Uh, those all might be 
things that would be good to do. But that's not what the author of Hebrews is calling us to here. The, the, the author of Hebrews is calling us to faith. He's calling us to believe. Uh, he's telling these people to hold firm to their original confidence in verse 14. And what's the basis of their original confidence? What's the basis of it? Is, is it their own strength and ability to keep themselves in the love of God? Uh, is, is it their own good works and their own ability to, for what they do to put on display and, and please God? No. That's, that's not what He's calling them to. He's calling them to put their original confidence in Christ. In, in the Gospel. Hebrews 3 is a call to continue to hope in the Gospel. That, that although we're sinful people who deserve God's just wrath, God has done something. God has sent His Son who took the punishment for our sin, absorbed God's wrath for our sin. That, that Jesus Christ was perfect in every way that we fail and that if we'll put our trust in Him, we'll be saved. That, that Christ rose from the dead victoriously after three days. And, and that, that means that death is not the last word for us. Uh, Christians are people who have put their hope in that message and developed a confidence in Christ and His work on our behalf. It says, so the Gospel remains a critical element, not just at the beginning of salvation, but all the way through the Christian life. All the way through life. In the wilderness, the author of Hebrews here is calling us to faith and belief in Jesus Christ. That, that's the personal dynamic, but there's also a really important interpersonal dynamic here. Look at verse 13. It says, But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Really helpful to make note here. Sin is deceitful. Sin is deceit. Sin lies to us. The, the Puritan Thomas Brooks, he, he, he puts it like this. He, he describes it as though sin is, is the worm. Or, or, or sin, sorry. In sin, we're, we're given the worm, but the hook is hidden. Uh, when it comes to sin, we're on the wrong side of, fish, of fishing. We're shown the worm, but the hook is hidden. Sin advertises pleasure but delivers pain, as one writer puts it. Sin promises security and pleasure, but actually delivers a hard heart that hates God, who happens to be the only one who can deliver true security and pleasure. So the author of Hebrews tells us here, exhort one another. There's an interpersonal dynamic to this, this kind of, this perseverance. An interpersonal dynamic. The body of Christ plays a critical role in persevering to the end in faith. We're not meant to journey in the wilderness alone. So this has some big implications, though. And I think it's just important to just say to everyone here, what we're seeing in Hebrews 3 is that if you're in spiritual isolation, you are in danger. If you're in spiritual isolation, you're in danger. Does anyone know how you're really doing? Does anyone know who you really are at a heart level? Or do you keep everyone at arm's length? Or even further? Is genuine fellowship with the body a priority? You know, maybe you're saying, you know, yeah, I'm open to this, but no one ever comes and talks to me. Well, 
Listen, that, that might be true and there might be an issue there, but, but Hebrews 3 is addressed to you. Are, are you making fellowship in the body a priority? Are, are you accountable to anyone? Are, are you making yourself available? Is, is there anyone in your life who's in a position to exhort you and to encourage you and correct you and, and warn you? Uh, the, the absence of mutual support in the Christian life, the absence of leaning on others, Persevering in the end. That, that is not, the absence of that is not a sign of maturity. It's a sign of spiritual immaturity. It, it's, it's probably so easy to think. It is, I know it's so easy to think. You know, I have Christ. I have the Holy Spirit. I'm a new creation. I don't need others to help discern my heart. I don't need others to point out idols in my life. God disagrees with you in Hebrews 3. He disagrees with you. Exhort one another. God in Hebrews 3 warns us, brothers and sisters, do you want to avoid having a hard heart hardened by the deceitfulness of sin? Then exhort one another. And he he says, exhort one another today. Today. There's a sense of urgency that kind of goes throughout this whole passage. Uh, This needs to be a priority. All right, look at the urgency. Uh, Psalm 95, you can look at verse 8, or you can look at verse 15, it's the same. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Or verse 13, exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today. Does this give you the impression that this is something you can, you can put off until a more convenient time in, in your Christian life? It means now. Exhort one another. Our understanding of the church and the Christian life, it, it is challenged here. Alright? We, we can make progress here at Sovereign Grace Church. Uh, the, the New Testament does not present Christianity as, uh, or doesn't present the local church as something we can just sort of relate to in a casual way. Uh, the church isn't just merely one of the pockets of pools of people we, we use to build our social life. And, and it, the New Testament doesn't describe the church as, as some building or some event that we attend regularly for uh, for encouragement or inspiration or or uh, just some, find out ways to make our lives more successful and productive. The New Testament presents life, the Christian life, as life in the wilderness. Life is hard. Tragedy is always around the corner. Our, our task of reaching the nations is, is gigantic. Our, our own hearts can't fully be trusted. Sin falsely promises security. And sin looks enticing all around. And there's a spiritual enemy who seeks our harm. But God is good. God is good. He, he creates a church so we don't do this alone. He, he creates the church so that we can exhort one another daily. He creates the church so that we'll hold our original confidence firm to the end and experience the results of heeding this warning. We've seen the what's at stake. We, we've, we've seen the instructions in the morning. Let's just end here briefly with taking a, a look at the results of heeding this warning. This is good. Two things. The first result of heeding this warning, if you look in verse 14, is that we get to share in Christ. For we have come to share in Christ. This is one of the greatest things. No, this isn't one of. This is the greatest thing you could possibly be a part of. Uh, Those who persevere to the end are people who will share in Christ 
for eternity. In fact, the sharing in Christ is something we've already begun to do if we are in Christ. The author of Hebrews has already gone to great lengths to put on display for us Jesus' majestic glory. Listen to who we get to share in for eternity. Just a brief summary. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. Jesus is God's beautiful, powerful Word made into human flesh. Jesus Christ is God's Son. He is the heir of all things. He is the creator of the world. Hebrews 1, 2. Jesus Christ is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the exact imprint of God's nature. He upholds the universe by the word of His power. Hebrews 1, 3. Jesus is greater than the mighty angels. Hebrews 1, 4. Jesus is the long-awaited Son of David who will sit on the throne forever. Hebrews 4, or 1, 4 through 14. Uh, Jesus is the man who exercises complete dominion over every molecule and planet in the universe. Hebrews 2, 5 through 9. Jesus is our perfect Savior who has suffered both for us and with us and helps us when we're tempted. Hebrews 2, 10 through 13. Jesus is the one who has destroyed Satan's power over us and welcomed us into his divine, everlasting family. Hebrews 2, 14 through 18. Jesus is the one who is faithful in all God's house as a son and is building us as members into his house. Hebrews 3, 1 through 6. There is nothing more glorious than what you could share in than Jesus Christ. And that is the result of heeding this warning, sharing in Christ. The second result of heeding this warning is entering God's rest. You see that in uh, verse 11, that the people of Israel did not enter God's rest in terms of the, the promised land. And uh, the, just the biblical and theological concept of God's rest is where the author is going to go next as he uh, goes into chapter 4. But what we can say right here, right now, what we can recognize is God's rest is the fulfillment of what the promised land pointed to and anticipated. God's rest is what the promised land of Canaan points to. God's rest is life eternal in God's kingdom, in the new heavens and the new earth, when, when all is made right again. That's what we get by heeding this warning. That's what we anticipate as we heed this warning. Rest, isn't that such a good, good concept to associate with heaven? Rest. Are you, are you tired? of sickness and death? Are you tired of struggling with sin? God desires that we enter His rest. And we do so by trusting in Christ and holding firm to that trust until the end. We're surrounded by warnings. I'm uttering warnings all the time to my kids. And I know my toddler warnings are going to turn into uh, elementary warnings and elementary warnings are going to turn into teenage warnings and teenage warnings are going to turn into young adult warnings. And uh, my parents are here this morning. They're they're giving 30-year-old warnings. You know, this, there's always warnings to go around. But the purpose of most of these warnings is not to be manipulative or threatening. The purpose of these warnings is to be redemptive. That they're meant to keep us from harm. 
This is the role of, of the warnings in Hebrews. This is the role of this warning in, in Hebrews 3. It's, it's redemptive. This, this warning is one of the means by which God keeps us in His love. So does this passage teach that genuine believers can lose their salvation? No. No, it teaches that all those who share in Christ must hold to their original confidence firm to the end. So we've, we've seen that the stakes in this morning are, they're very high. All right. It, it is possible to have an evil, unbelieving heart. It is possible to be along for the ride with God's people in order to receive God's gifts, but not be interested in God. It's, it's, it's possible to have an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. And to fall away from the living God is to experience eternal spiritual death. But there's, there's instructions here too. We've seen the instructions. The instructions are take care. Be careful. Watch out. See to it. Keep trusting and believing in Christ. Exhort one another or exhort one another to do the same. Receive exhortation from others so that you won't be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. And we've seen the results of heeding this warning are wonderful. The results of heeding this warning, sharing in Christ the most glorious person in the universe, and eternal rest, kingdom of God. Those are things, uh, those are great reasons to heed this warning and receive it as as good news. Let's, Let's pray together. Father, our, our hearts are un, unreliable. We, we are utterly dependent uh, on you and, and in your transforming grace. Uh, we know our enemy is effective. Uh, we, we take great comfort in that you are greater than the enemy. But we know that sin is deceptive. It lies to us. And and we need you in order to see it for what it is. Father, would you give us soft hearts, eager to respond to you? Would you keep us from falling away? Would you you grant us faith and confidence in your Son? Would you make this church, would you make Sovereign Grace Church a place where we exhort one another and receive exhortation all in grace? Father, we desire to make it to the promised land. We, we, des- we desire to be in the place where we will enjoy your presence forever. So, Father, we believe. Help our unbelief. Father, would you make our hearts your own? Pray that you would do that even as we sing this next song. In Jesus' name, amen.